Imagine if you were a suicide attacker and you were planning an attack on that in those early stages. Would there be any change in your writing that could be used to predict an event before it happened? This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Uncertainty is one of the major themes of Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. Struggling with a mental breakdown, Hamlet's potential wife, Ophelia, responds to the question of how she's doing today, saying, we know what we are, but not what we may be. Today, we're visited by David Kernot of the Australian National University's National Security College, who talks with us about his research into predicting personality and psychological well-being through idiosyncratic markers in historic texts, such as Shakespeare's. Technology which has potential applications in security and health. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's David Kernot. My name is David Kernot, and I work at the Defence Science Technology Group. I grew up in Adelaide, in South Australia, and um, I left school at 16 to join the Army as a boy soldier. I did an apprenticeship in electronics, and I eventually studied electronic engineering at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology before I joined the South Australian Police Force as a police communications specialist. But if, if you really Googled me hard, you'd find that I'm a science fiction writer predominantly and published uh, a reasonable number of uh, science fiction stories. So that's been always been my interest, writing science fiction. And, and I've always sort of had a long-term interest in science. And it wasn't until recently that I've actually really got into this whole area of studying and becoming interested in identity and trying to use that in in my work environment. And I'd always been interested in computer science. And so I, I learned how to write software and I ended up developing my own computer software company. And uh, I tried that for a little while. And then I found that there was a job opening in defense, Department of Defense, as an IT systems analyst of all things. And they liked me. So yeah, I joined the team. And uh, yeah, I studied up on IT then because I wasn't really qualified. I went to uni for the first time and I got my Bachelor of Technology way back in, well, it's actually only 2010. And then I did a postgrad. I went and did a Master of Philosophy in Information Technology. And that's when I started looking at identity as a, a bit of a problem space. And then I, when I finished that, for the last four years, I've been completing my PhD thesis, which is a work-based thesis. So I actually work for Defence Science Technology Group but I also spend a fair bit of that time at work doing my PhD and writing up my thesis with the uh, National Security College at uh, the Australian National University. And this paper was um, one of the four Shakespearean publications from my thesis, which looked at identity. And then I had a bunch of others on um, contemporary writers, uh, Iris Murdoch and P.D. James. And then um, I did some work on um, trying to identify suicide attackers. So that's probably an intro to me. For someone regarded as the greatest writer in the English language, it's surprising how little is known of the life of William Shakespeare. 
He's believed to have been born Gulliamus Shakespeare in April of 1564, and that he authored nearly 40 plays and more than 150 sonnets in his 52 years of life. But over 200 years after his death, skepticism began to grow about the true authorship of various works attributed to him. Doug and I began our conversation with David by asking him to explain why determining Shakespeare's identity continues to captivate researchers to this day. Shakespeare was, um, it was an interesting choice, I suppose. But the thing is, you know, when you're trying to do research nowadays, it's really hard, it's really hard to get data on people. Um, you know, they've got the whole privacy issue to worry about and all of that. So um, Shakespeare's been dead for 400 years and we knew he wouldn't complain if we um, analysed his work. And so there has been a whole lot of work that's been done on Shakespeare, especially in the identity space, because a lot of his work is considered to be his, but it's not. So there's a body of work that's contested. Some works are contested. They, they're suggested to be written by him and they're actually written by other authors. There's a bunch of work that he's done that he did write. And it's the same with Marlowe as well. So Marlowe wrote a lot of work when he was alive, before he was assassinated, we think. And um, after that, a number of people finished his work for him. So the Shakespearean area is, is excellent because language hasn't changed too much. I mean, there's been changes, but it hasn't changed. It's not like old English. So it's, it's relatively similar. And a lot of the techniques you can apply to that that period of time. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect, of course, is that there's a lot of people that believe that he never existed at all, that he might have been, in fact, a member of the government, that he might actually have been Edward de Vere. Some people believe that Christopher Marlowe was actually writing all of Shakespeare's works and that he continued secretly even after he was assassinated, that he never really did die, and he wrote Shakespeare's work. So there's a whole lot of identity-type concepts surrounding Shakespeare and that period of time. And it's, you know, the more you read about it, the, the, the more fascinating it becomes. So, you know, it's like a, it's, it's been a 400-year journey of discovery for scholars when they're looking at Shakespeare, because even today they're still finding that, you know, he collaborated with people that they didn't know of back then because there's all these new techniques that keep coming out for identity purposes to try and get a handle on who's actually writing these old historical scripts and it goes across a whole bunch of authors not just Shakespeare you know there's Marlowe and there's I've done some work with Thomas Kidd as well looking at him but yeah it's it's fascinating stuff because you get to hear about their lives and it's it's a bit of fun David's background is in criminal justice and computer science, specifically as they apply to national security. Here, he describes how his analysis of classic literature set out as a means of detecting those who may be susceptible to radicalization. In my thesis, I did three studies. I did a study on Elizabethan, um, the Elizabethan playwrights for identity purposes. I then did a bunch of studies on um, Iris Murdoch and P.D. James because P.D. James was a control who lived a very healthy life, whereas Iris Murdoch, she had Alzheimer's. She developed Alzheimer's probably in her last novel. It was very apparent, and she died from Alzheimer's disease. She was known to have depression, bouts of depression and anxiety throughout her life, and there's a good body of work available when you study her, um, and you can identify where... Um, a person is depressed and, and has anxiety, which we thought 
was something that um, suicide attackers, you know, might go through. So we sat down and we sort of asked the question, you know, imagine, imagine if you were a suicide attacker and you were planning an attack on that in those early stages, would there be any change in your writing that could be used to predict an event before it happened? So, you know, these attackers sort of become radicalized. You know, they they start off um, relatively calm and, and then they sort of move through phases to a point where they're ready to commit an act. So we sort of said, well, is there anything that might give them away? Something that we could use to predict when they were going to do it and see if we could see these changes. So we had a look at the manifestos and suicide notes of the attackers and we had a look at their earlier work and you can definitely see a change you know you can see a change in their emotions in their sentiment they get they get angrier they, there's more negative negativity in their writing and so we we applied the algorithm that we developed to their writings and compared them to our normal bloggers as a control and we could see the change and we think that we can see a tipping point in an individual, you know, prior to these notes appearing. So we can, we think we might be able to get to a point prior to an attack. That's our hope, at least. David developed a computational algorithm, which he dubbed RPASS, named for the four features it considers as being indicative of an author's identity and personality, the richness of their vocabulary, their use of personal pronouns, the degree of their activity in referring to the five senses, and their preference for adjectives referring to those senses. David shared what each of these four fingerprints of an author's style might say about their psychology. Basically, it pulls on different aspects of science. So richness is uh, looking at, you know, it can look at somebody's age, for instance, can give away age because we all tend to learn more words as we get older up until a point and then it sort of declines it used to be a lot earlier in Shakespeare's day but today it's sort of around about 65 ish we're still learning new words and then it sort of drops away so there's that but if you're educated that will change as well so the more educated you are typically you'll, you'll know more words we did the personal pronouns for identity and what we were looking at is that gender isn't really that you're male and female um, we put gender through these personal pronouns use on a continuum between zero and one. And we ended up providing a, a personal pronouns score, which just basically reflected the amount of pronouns that you would use, given that males would use a certain amount typically and females would as well. So what it does is it reflects a, a person's internal gender. It's got nothing to do with, with sex per se. It's it's um, how they might feel inside and, and function that way. So, you know, we developed that. And then we had a look at some studies on clinical depression um, because, you know, attackers were known to be depressed at times. And so by using the concept of referential activity, which is used in clinical depression studies, we, we grabbed the, um, the medical research Corporation's psycholinguistic database, and we picked key uh, function words that were very high in imagery and concreteness. So basically, when you use very concrete words, you're very clear. Um, when you don't, you're quite abstract in your thinking. But 
when you use very high imagery, you, you, you know, you pull on certain parts of your brain and you, then you use a lot of these sensory adjectives as well. So there's, there can be two states. You know, you can be very highly imagery focused and concrete and clear and lucid, for instance. But when you're very depressed, that tends to change. And the studies suggest that concrete goes down and your imagery goes down because you, you can't function as well as you could when you're in that um, depressed state as when you're not depressed, for instance. So, you know, we use these um, these referential activity type of idea, this concept, and and uh, we created a score based on the psycho, the, the MRC psycholinguistic database. And, and then the last one, which is the sensory adjectives, you know, so we were looking at the five senses and so we were looking at words that reflect the senses. And um, we turned it into a bit of an algorithm to measure that, that value based on the amount of words in, in a body of text. So, you know, the use of these sorts of words can also be used in identity. And that's the, the four sort of subsets that, that made up our algorithm. And they all relate to self, to, to the way that an, an individual presents themselves to the world. Having explained the elements of his algorithm, Ryan and I asked David to take a step back for us and describe what the broader aims were of the various studies he undertook, and what performance gains his RPAS algorithm accumulated over the course of his studies. So I did a Master of Philosophy at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, and I was introduced to the concept of neurolinguistic programming, which was being used by psychologists to sort of align themselves better with patients and stuff. And my first supervisor was really big into these concepts and he put me down the path of using the senses, our taste and smell and sight and hearing or haptic sensations when we sit and we know our place in the world physically within our bodies. So all these sorts of sense things are sort of embedded in neuro-linguistic programming and so I'd had eight different studies of which the first four were looking were the Shakespearean ones. And we were looking at trying to separate individuals from their writing by being able to identify them. So in the first case, we were looking at Shakespeare, Marlowe and Elizabeth Carey and trying to separate their works using the RPAS algorithm to see whether we could just do that in simple terms. And then the next stage, we added another element. We said, well, now that we can identify individuals uh, that, who are known to us, can we identify individuals who are unknown? So we did another study with Thomas Kidd and Shakespeare using the anonymous play Edward III. So we were trying to see if we could allocate the anonymous scenes in that play to either Shakespeare or Marlowe. So the compl you know, that comp made the, um, the process a little more complicated. And then we looked at The Passionate Pilgrim, which has many authors, including Shakespeare, and it also has many unknown poets in, in the body of work as well. So that gave us um, even more unknowns and even more people that are known. So it's, it retested our algorithm and our techniques. So that was the first part of the study where we were trying to test different, different levels of identity, uh, at least the complexity of that of that problem and then we moved into trying to determine if we could identify changes in individuals over a period of time 
So we picked um, Shakespeare's sonnets and we, we broke all the sonnets down into the, the individual sonnets that Shakespeare wrote. And we tried to see if we could identify change. And how we did that was we, we assumed that um, we could separate the dark lady sonnets from the rest of Shakespeare's work and seeing whether or not we could look at the subtleties within, within writing of a single author to see if we could see change. And, you know, we were quite successful using some techniques that we could talk about, if you like. Of course, Doug and I accepted David's invitation, wondering what kinds of tells our past looks for to identify the hidden voice present in someone's writings, and how these might suggest an author's mental state. A lot of people will look at, they'll look at some text, they'll tokenize the data, they'll create like a body of words by frequency, and, and then they'll use some tools to look at the different linguistic markers across a broad spectrum of different parts of speech, for instance. And there's a whole lot of different techniques that are in use. It's, it's, it's quite extensive. But our approach, we've tried to be a little bit different. So we've tried to separate the words into function words and content words. And the content words are the words that sort of carry, carry meaning. So they're nouns and verbs and the likes of that. So they, they explain things and they've got actions and stuff. So we we predominantly throw away all those words and we keep the junk words, the, the words that, that most techniques and most applications throw away. And so we focus on the junk words, you know, the, um, the function words, the words that actually join sentences together. So we're not actually interested in what someone is saying. We're interested in how they say it. And that how the way people say things is actually tied to their cognitive state and their, their mental well-being, and it's tied to their sense of self. The exception is, of course, we are using sensory adjectives, which are tied to the senses as well. So there's a lot of synergies between the way that the senses operate to implant memory and to recall memory, and the interaction of disease and illness and your cognitive state in that ability to recall words and use words and hence that is reflected in in your writing if you're tense you're anxious if you're depressed or if you have a a cognitive disease for instance and if you don't have any of those then there's still a difference because those things aren't making an impact on your writing and your your whole mental state so you know we've used personality to use that as a way to identify people In machine learning, a single large data set is typically divided into a training set from which a computer develops a model of the relationships among variables, and a testing set which is later used to determine the accuracy of that model. But while Shakespeare wrote a substantial amount of material, the contemporaries of his who are suspected as potential authors of his work didn't. So David found it necessary to create smaller pieces of text by dividing them up randomly into equivalently sized chunks. Here, David describes how he went about verifying that this process didn't decompose Shakespeare's text so much that it would be impossible to discern them as Shakespeare's words. Typically, what you do is you would create yourself a training set and you'd build yourself a model and you would train that model up and then you would grab your the remaining data and then you would test it using your training set to sort of demonstrate how effective your technique was. And that's a tried and, and proven and, and very correct method. But we didn't do that because the data was really hard 
to get. Um, there wasn't, there isn't a lot because Shakespeare's works is um, not enormously large, and we can't ask him to write any more. So we were sort of stuck. So we used the whole data set to create our model, and we found some really fascinating things. You know, so we were able to use um, the auditory sensory word and the haptic sensory word. And what we had to do then was uh, create some synthetic data out of the original data, um, which is it's, which is an uncommon technique nowadays, but it's still a very effective technique. So we we took a number of works from Shakespeare, a random sample of his works, and then we broke them into thousand word chunks, and then we randomly mixed them all up and created another data set of um, Shakespeare from his works. And the goal is to then overlay that on top of the known works to see whether or not these constructed works can also be matched. And um, we were fortunate in that they did. So it was, it was definitely an unusual technique and it was not the typical technique that you'd apply nowadays, but it's certainly um, a very effective technique all the same. Richness is a measure of a person's ability to use a large vocabulary in their speech and writing. This ability is related to an author's age and education. And as David already discussed, one theory of the authorship of Shakespeare's works attributes Christopher Marlowe as his true author. Here, David explains how he tested this claim and what he found. Shakespeare has been reputed to have introduced many, many words to the English language. And um, it's been said that uh, he knew an incredible amount of words. And in fact, you know, we, we broke these words down in our study when we compared the amount of words that Marlowe, you know, Christopher Marlowe knew and compared them to Shakespeare to test this claim that Shakespeare was outstanding. But the, the problem was that Marlowe died and only wrote a few words and Shakespeare wrote a lot. So it was sort of hard to sort of test that. But what we did do, we looked at the, the amount of unique words that Marlowe did in his time and, and Shakespeare over his time, and we plotted them out um, in the study. And what we found was that the, the rate at which both authors were picking up words mapped the same way. So we would suggest that if, if Marlowe had still been alive for as long as Shakespeare had, it was likely that his trajectory it looked like it was following the same thing. So you could have said that Marlowe, you know, introduced a lot of new words and was very rich in his in his um, word use as well. So we've sort of suggested that their trajectories are the same, which which actually feeds into the whole idea that, you know, maybe Shakespeare and Marlowe were one and the same person after all. But um, we don't know that. David initially used hierarchical clustering, a method for identifying groupings of data that are similar to one another, to differentiate the writings of William Shakespeare from his contemporaries Christopher Marlowe and Elizabeth Carey. Ryan and I asked David to talk with us about what he found and to suggest how we might interpret the results of his analysis. The first thing that I did initially was um, I used hierarchical clustering analysis using, um, you know, SPSS. And so I processed all of the works of Shakespeare and Marlowe initially. And we then fed those elements into SPSS. And what we said was there's three authors here. So there's Shakespeare, there's Marlowe, and there's um, Elizabeth Carey. So if we break the data 
into three clusters, it's going to say that in one cluster, there's only Elizabeth Carey. In another one, there's only going to be Shakespeare. And in the, obviously the other one, there's Marlowe. I mean, you know, that's like the perfect scenario. So we, we did this and it was a mess. Um, it didn't cluster well at all. So we found that there was a whole bunch of Marlowe in Shakespeare and vice versa. And a hierarchical clustering didn't work the way that, that we thought it did. But what it did was it, it made us ask a question, you know, why are they so similar when they should be in a perfect scenario, nice and clean? So what we found was that um, the body of works of Shakespeare contains the works that were known to be written by him. They're his um, non-contested works. Everybody believes he's written those. They're pretty clear. But then there's another set that Shakespeare has supposedly written that are contested. So in our data set, there was contested works that he wrote, and we found that they weren't similar to Shakespeare's other works. So it was, it was a good way of sort of highlighting that Shakespeare didn't write all of his works. Beyond suggesting the identities of literary figures, David hopes that his algorithm may be applicable in other areas as well. Here, he describes some of the other potential applications for RPAS. The approach that we took with uh, RPAS is a multidisciplinary approach. You know, it pulls on it pulls on different sciences as well, and it pulls on different aspects of a person's personality. But with the sensory stuff, that was the most interesting thing of all because when we we use that in the works of Iris Murdoch, for instance, and we use some critical slowing down techniques to see if we could see a tipping point. I mean, we didn't have data on terrorists and attackers and all of this sort of stuff really, you know, it's hard to get hold of. So what we did was we had a look at the writing of Iris Murdoch over her, I think it was 26 novels. And we took a quite a large sample of each of her novels and we, we monitored the change over time. And when we applied the critical slowing down techniques to see if we could see a tipping point that might suggest her progression of Alzheimer's, we were hoping that that would be a, a good sort of example of what we might be able to do with a suicide attacker. The really strange thing was when we were looking at these sensory adjectives is that we found a tipping point, but we didn't find it during her last book when she was developing Alzheimer's. We found it 20 years before that book. And, you know, so we, we're wondering whether or not we've identified a technique that can identify Alzheimer's 20 years before a formal diagnosis. Yeah, we're also hoping to be able to use it to identify PTSD in returning servicemen as well. So if we can do that using referential activity power in particular, and we can see the sorts of indicators of depression and things like that in returning soldiers, for instance, servicemen and women, we might be able to then be on the ball and be able to help them out sooner before they um, before they leave the service and the likes of that. Because certainly a problem over here with our returning service personnel. Probably the most often repeated aphorism made about statistical models is one from the 1970s attributed to British statistician George Box. All models are wrong, some are useful. A model is not made better by continually adding to it, but rather by selecting only those features that contribute best to its explanatory power. In this context, David talked with us about what amount of data his RPAS algorithm requires to meaningfully make predictions. When we did Shakespeare's sonnets, we used um, RPAS using a technique called seriation, which was used in DNA analysis 
and also in um, dating items from the pyramids and the likes of that. It's uh, quite a, it's an old sort of technique. Using that on about 80 words, we were able to look at subtle differences and change um, within Shakespeare's sonnets. So a lot of Shakespeare's works that we use were about 20 to 25,000 words, and, and we could see things there. The work that we did on um, Iris Murdoch was sitting around about 4,000 words. And so what we've sort of deemed at the moment is um, somewhere between 1,000 and 4,000 words is a good a good area because with a lot of these techniques, you know, we use richness, which is um, a measure where we're looking at the amount of words in the data set that we um, start sampling. That actually has an impact. The sample size has an impact on on the quality of the algorithm. And so there is a limit and we think that it's it's about 25,000 words um, before you reach the um, the asymptote and then the um, the algorithm stops working effectively. So it's about it's about 4,000 words, I'd say, but it can be used on a smaller sample size. To close out our conversation, Doug and I were interested in hearing what David might have learned, which goes beyond his original purpose of uncovering people's identities and personalities for national security purposes. I started doing this research with a very clear focus about trying to identify individuals in the national security space, I think. And along the way, I've actually got a better appreciation of the value of history within science, which is something that I'd never appreciated before, but also the fact that in doing research that can be applied for completely different things. And I think for me, I started off looking at one particular problem, but I'm actually very interested in looking at the the dementia and the Alzheimer's space from a medical perspective now. So, yeah, it's um, something that's changed that way, and I'm I'm looking at it more from a a medical perspective of all things. And I think it's the nature of multidisciplinary research that it it just presents that opportunity to sort of go places that you never thought you would or you never thought were possible. And so, you know, for me, that's been exciting. That was David Kernot discussing his article, Using Shakespeare's Sotto Voce to Determine True Identity from Text, published on March 15, 2018 in the journal Frontiers in Psychology with Terry Bossemeyer and Roger Bradbury. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other materials that David discussed during the episode. If you haven't rated or reviewed Parsing Science yet, we'd really appreciate it if you would do so. Just head to parsingscience.org review, where you'll be linked to our show on iTunes. It's a great way to help others discover the show. Or if you have comments or suggestions on future topics or guests, visit us at parsingscience.org suggest. You can also leave us a message toll-free at 1-866-XPLORIT. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Anita Konopov from Boston University. She'll talk with us about her research into racial disparities in fatal shootings by police of unarmed blacks and whites across the United States. Our paper is kind of suggesting that it's not about one person. It's more of this structural level issue. And police aren't trained only at a state level, right? There's like community, there's a different types of police departments, like the county level or the city level. So the fact that we're seeing this relationship on a state level to us was interesting because that's not how the education of police officers works necessarily. We hope that you'll join us again.